you, my friends and my family at this church. It's truly a, a privilege to come. And you can all be doing whatever. I know, you know, there's so many things vying for our time. There's so many things um, that demand our attention in this world. Uh, but you're here tonight, and I appreciate that. Those of you that are online, I appreciate you guys. <clears throat> We're in Isaiah chapter 6. This is the pivotal point, not only in the book of Isaiah, but in the Old Testament. This is one of those chapters where we must take time, where, where we must not only camp out and digest, but it prepares the way for the rest of Isaiah. Uh, because as we approach uh, this chapter, and, and as the ladies up front, uh, Kat and Rebecca, led us in worship of the Holy One, not only of Israel, but the Holy One of all. Uh, the One who is, as we're going to find out, holy, holy, holy. So in Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to read 1 uh, through 8 there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Listen, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom... Shall I sin? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And so, Father, tonight as we approach this most sacred of texts, and I, I ask that you would prepare our hearts just as we sang those words, the seraphim joining with the cherubim and the seraphim, uh, the mighty beings in heaven itself who proclaim not only your name, but the very character that defines 
who you are. Holy, holy, holy. It is not just us singing or saying those words. It is us with the hosts of heaven itself. And Lord, every time we come before you, help us to get a glimpse. Help us to see just a glimpse of who you are as Isaiah had the privilege to into your very uh, throne room through which we can also approach, not because of anything that we have done, but because what your son did for us, tearing that veil, preparing the way so that we could come into the holy of holies. And tonight, as is our tradition, we pray for our pastors, Lord. We thank you for Pastor Mike Ostheimer and Pastor Mike Butler. We thank you for my, Pastor Mike Cosper and Pastor Mike Atkinson, Lord. We know, we, we don't fully know all the, the trials that they go through on a daily basis. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen them, encourage them, be there for them, Lord. We thank you for their leadership skills and their ability to be able to lead in service with us. Lord, and we lift up to you our elders, Larry and Ron, and we ask that you give them a clear vision uh, for our church. We ask that you would bless them uh, with wisdom and guidance, Lord. We thank you so much for the privilege to be under leadership that serves, Lord. We thank you so much for this, my friends, the congregation of our church, and we ask that you would help us as we come before you tonight to also get a glimpse of what it's like to be before a holy and righteous God and how that will transform how it must transform our lives as it did with Isaiah. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us to get a glimpse of your presence tonight, that we would feel your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Isaiah is the longest of the prophets. If you were here the last couple of weeks as we've been introducing uh, this amazing topic of what it is like to be a prophet of God. And not only the preparation uh, that it took, but the length of time for which the prophets would serve. And Isaiah, if you remember from the very first verse, uh, was prophesying to four different kings. He got to prophesy before Uzziah. He got to prophesy before Ahaz and Jotham and Hezekiah. Four kings over an approximate uh, 70 year career of being a prophet of God. 66 chapters. The second longest of all the books in the Old Testament. And as we approach this amazing, weighty book, there is a period of time, a, a hiatus, if you will, a, a time of preparation in which Isaiah approaches the very throne room of God and it prepares him for the rest of his ministry. The next 60 chapters of the book. A times of hardship, times of loneliness, a times of questioning what is happening to my people, God. And as he is being prepared, just like anyone who serves in ministry, there is a time of rest before God. There, there is a time of understanding who God is compared to who I am. 
because as anyone who has ever served in the church, is it a hard task? We don't see half of what our pastors have to do. We don't see half of what our pastors have to endure. And the same thing with the prophets. Isaiah could have written much about the trials in his life, just like Jeremiah would write and Ezekiel uh, would write and all the rest of the prophets would write. Last week, we introduced this chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, you can uh, watch last week's you know, uh, uh, sermon on this, uh, but just to sum it up, and, and I encourage you, if you, you know, not now, of course, uh, but later on in the week, if you weren't here, read Second Chronicles chapters, chapter 26. Just the whole chapter there. And just to kind of summarize what is happening, Uzziah was one of those good kings. He was a king that loved God. He was a king that loved his country. He built up not only the defenses of Israel, he expanded the borders of Israel. He put ballistas and catapults on the very corners of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. He provided food. He loved the agriculture, making sure that the people were fed. And as 2 Chronicles chapter 26 says, until he became strong. And then what happened in his life, and if you remember the story, he decided to do something that was outside his office. He was the king. He was descended from the line of David. He had the right to be king, but he also wanted another office. He wanted the office of priest. And so what he did is he took his censer that he thought he deserved, and he went into the very holy of holies, the temple itself, the one that King Solomon had built. And he had to be opposed by those priests, the men that loved him and would have died for their king. But yet they saw in his life a pride that had built up. And they said, this is not your place, O king. And you remember the story, what broke out right there. What all the priests saw, but Uzziah did not see. That representation of the sin in the center of our forehead. The representation of pride in the middle of our forehead. And everyone else was able to see it except for Uzziah. This is the time period that we are in right now because the leper king has just died. Now, it's hard for us to kind of grasp uh, what it means for a monarch to die. And just, you know, a couple of months ago, what happened in England, right? You know, Prince Philip died, right? And why, you know, what happened to the country? There was a time of mourning. This is exactly what's happening now in the nation of Israel. The leper king, the one who assumed that he had the privilege and the right to take the office of the priesthood, entered the place of a holy, holy, holy God. 
And now Isaiah in the very same place is before that same holy, holy, holy God. And we understand why he cries out, woe is me. Because unlike Christianity today, where we take prayer and worship so flippantly, so casually, Isaiah understood and is reintroduced to the holiness of God. And hopefully tonight, as we walk through this amazing chapter, we too get a glimpse of the holiness of God. I just want to read for you the ending of the story of King Uzziah's life. And again, you can read this in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. The leper king has just died. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord, no longer even able to join the people in worship of God, no longer able to participate in any of the religious uh, services as the king. Instead, what happened? Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. A surrogate had to take his place. His son had to start his reign early because of his father, who was now unclean, a leper until his death. In verse 2, we get a picture of what it's like to be in the very presence of a holy, righteous, and awesome God. By the way, this is only one of two passages where we see this ever. Here in Isaiah and again in Revelation chapter 4, uh, verse 8. It says in verse 2, Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. This is the only time we see the word seraphim in the whole Bible. Now, in other parts of the Bible, we see cherubim. We see mighty ones in the book of Ezekiel. We see cherubim in the you know, book of Revelation and throughout the rest of Scripture. But this is the only time we see this word seraphim being used. And it literally means the burning one. The, the ones who exude their you know, uh, being as on fire and who sing these praises over and over and over again without any boredom, without any lack of exuberance, without any uh, degree of lessening their praise. In fact, over and over and over again, as they say these words, it gains meaning in the hearing of those who listen. In verse 3, what do they cry? And just as we sang, one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And just like we've learned before, 
in the book of Isaiah, this title for the Lord, the Lord of hosts. What does it mean? The one who's in charge of all the armies of heaven, the greatest army in the universe, the army that surrounded Elijah's house, the army that with one angel could come and defeat entire armies here on earth. The one who is in charge of all the angels in heaven at his beck and call, the Lord of hosts. And what can't even contain his glory? The whole entire earth. As Isaiah approaches a holy, holy uh, God to understand that nothing in our universe or nothing in our world or nothing in all of creation can ever contain his glory. His glory is truly infinite. His glory is his splendor. You see, the attributes of God, and, and if you've ever, you know, whether it's study or taken a study or read through the Bible about the attributes of God and who he is, they are all summed up in this word, holy. And again, this is only one of two times where this word holy is repeated three times. It is the superlative of attributes. Now, I, I know most of us uh, here in this room were older, you know, except for, you know, uh, you know, a couple of the guys here in the front. And I understand that, you know, maybe you've forgotten what it was like to be in elementary school and, and taking grammar. But we also have a superlative. We just add letters to the end of our words, right? Uh, and you've probably heard this if you've listened to me uh, this before, but we say things like slow, and then we say slower, and then we say slowest, right? We add letters to the end of our words, and they define what it means to be the comparative and then the superlative, the E-R and the E-S-T. We, we say things like fast, I, I'm a fast John. And then there's John Kleins who is faster. And then you have John fastest in the back. And if you, you know, you've ever seen him run down the aisle when something goes wrong up here, you know he is the fastest John, right? You understand that? We, we, that's how we make comparisons in our language. We say things like low, lower, lowest, or high, higher, highest, or, you know, of course, if we have bad grammar, we say good, gooder, and goodest, right? Yeah. English is weird. But you understand in the Hebrew, the word is repeated. There's no special ending or weird endings. There's just a repetition of the word. So when we see an attribute of God repeated, it's saying, holy, holier, the holiest. The superlative form of the word. In fact, it's the only attribute of God that is ever repeated. You will never see love, love, love. You will never see, thank God, wrath, wrath, wrath. You will never see any of the attributes of God 
repeated, omnipotent, 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 or omniscient, omniscient, omniscient. No, this one attribute of God defines all of his attributes in one. He is holy. He is the holiest. He is holy, holy, holy. It defines who he is at his very core. He could never be anything else but holy. It is the definition of all of its attributes in complete harmony. And we understand it, and you've probably heard it this way, W-H-O-L-E. You see, God is whole. He is never divided. He is holy in his very being. He is the definition of what it means to be holy. It is his wrath and his love in working perfect harmony. It is his judgment and his grace coming together in perfect holiness. It is his omnipotence and his gentleness together as one. His omnipresence and his intimacy with us at the same exact time. And then, of course, his eternality and his presence here with us now. In the present. It's his attributes combined into one word. He is holy. And the only attribute that will be declared forever and ever and ever in heaven, whom we also get to join with, is the holiness of God. It is holy, holy, holy that we will cry out for all of eternity, joining with the heavenly choir, these seraphim as well. Without any lack of exuberance, without any boredom whatsoever, over and over and over again, understanding that his holiness is who he is. It is also defined as set apart. And you probably understand this and have heard this as well. Holiness means to be set apart. There is only one God. God is unique. God in his eternality, in his holiness, in his love, in his omnipotence, in who he is, in his omniscience and eternality, is God one. And many times people approach this verse and unfortunately, <coughs> excuse me, they interpret it the wrong way. They say that God the Father is holy and, and God the Son is holy and God the Holy Spirit is holy. And yes, that is 100% true. But this is not what that verse is talking about. We'll see that later on, yes. But in this verse here, it defines God and his unity, three in one, holy, 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 the divine attribute of God that defines who he is in his very being, who he is in his holiness. It is also... <coughs> the only attribute that we are called to emulate. Do you understand that, yes, God is holy, holy, holy. 
is the only one that defines what holiness is. He is the holiest. But what does he also call us to be? Holy as well. You see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, I thank God for Job back there. He makes sure that everything is you know, up there on the screen. It says, but as he who called you is holy. God is holy in his very being. Yes, 100%. But what does he call for us as well? You also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy. For I am holy. It is the attribute of God that he calls us and invites us to emulate. Yes, he is perfect in all of his being and I am not. I have sin in my life. All of us are sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. But what is God doing from the time that we are justified to the time that we are glorified? He is sanctifying us. There's that word again, sanctity or sanctifying. And what does it mean? In the process of looking just like Jesus Christ. In the process of being holy. And is that a hard road? Is it a refining time in our lives? And if you've ever wanted to look more and more like Jesus Christ, just as Kat was saying up here, it means denying myself. It means looking more and more like Jesus Christ. It means asking the hard questions. It means being humble. And just like the opposite of Uzziah with that pride in his heart, that leprosy right in the forehead that everyone else could see, but yet he himself could not. Can we also, can I also have pride in my life? And this is the contrast that we see throughout the book of Isaiah. We see God's holiness and we see Israel's sin. We see God's humbleness in who he is, and Israel's pride. They're stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and we can accuse them all day because we see it in their lives, but we don't see it right in front of us, right in the middle of our, my forehead. And it's so easy to deny. It's so easy to, you know, flippantly just say, that's for that person that didn't show up tonight. I'm here. But to understand that God's calling us to look more and more like him. And the privilege as we go through the book of Isaiah, and yes, this isn't just one chapter. This is the whole book. This isn't just one prophet, but it's all the people of God that are called to serve, and to be there for people that, yes, it's hard to serve. But what does it do in our own lives? It refines us. And so the attribute of holiness that defines all of God's attributes, all these things that we can't quite grasp in our humanity are summed up in the phrase, holy, holy holy. What happens to the very foundations, the very doorposts where Isaiah is at? 
In verse 4, it says, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of, of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, and hopefully we get a little bit of a bigger understanding of why Isaiah is saying this. Because again, what has just happened? The leper king, the one who assumed the office of priesthood, has just died. The consequences for the rest of his life literally displayed on his outer being, having to be separated from the nation of Israel. His son having to take his place early on the throne. The leper king has just died. And Isaiah cries out as he's before a holy, holy God. Woe is me. For I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. First addressing himself. I dwell in the midst of a people. Of unclean lips. To understand that from the very beginning. Of the history of Israel itself. The founder of Israel. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who was later renamed Israel, literally defining what it means to be deceptive, literally defining what it means to lie and get the upper hand. It was Jacob there with his twin brother who deceived him. It was Jacob, that heel grabber, the one who came out after his brother Esau, who deceived his dad. It was Jacob himself, the founder of Israel, who would later on deceive his father-in-law as well over and over and over again until he wrestled with God and his name was changed to Israel. He was defined as one who could always get the upper hand. As one who could get the best deal. What we define a, an Israelite as or a Jew as. They're able to somehow be able to use their business dealing and God somehow blesses it for some reason despite the fact that they have strayed from God. But will God always keep his promises even to a deceptive, unclean, hard-hearted Stiff-necked people. Will God once again reach out to the Israelites? Yes, he will. And we see that also in the book of Isaiah and also in the book of Ezekiel as well. The very doorposts are shaking. The very voice of God without any amplification whatsoever, without any mouthpiece, without any microphone, without any big, huge speakers, the very voice of God is booming, shaking the very core of the temple itself. And Isaiah, understanding his own sin and his people's sin as well, to the very depths of who they are as unclean lips. That part of the body, as James says, that is the hardest to tame, the tongue. Because guess what? When you say something, can you pull it back in? No. And all of us have been there. All of us have done this. All of us have fallen short. And Isaiah, he understands this. And he says, for my eyes have seen 
the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, that title for God, that means the one who is in charge of all the armies of heaven. The one who is in command of the greatest army in the entire universe, for which one angel can come down and destroy massive armies and only obey one, their creator, God. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it. Do you smell? Do you smell the burning flesh? I've barbecued before. I've been to a campsite before. What is it like when you put your hand too far over the coals as you're trying to, you know, whether play in the fire or turn something over? What happens to the hair on your arm? <clears throat> you smell the burning, that flesh that is burning from the coal. And what part of Isaiah's body is being touched by that live red coal, not just from a campfire, not just from a barbecue, but from the very presence of a holy and righteous God. Not, not just something that a man has created, you know, in, in all of its, whether it's, you know, a, a high producing flame, a high temperature flame or, or something like that, but no, a righteous fire as it touches the most sensitive parts of the body, the lips themselves. The, the, those, that part of the body that defines who we are when we actually have our cup tipped or our cup bumped. And those things come out of our very soul that we've been thinking about in the back of our head. And then when someone does something, oh yeah, we can release it. Why? Because we have the right to. But to understand that this cleansing that's being taking place is to prepare Isaiah for a people whose cups are going to be bumped. And he's going to hear it. Because he has to speak the words of God to a people that don't want to hear it. This isn't a cush missionary job. It's not the missionary that gets to go to Hawaii or Bora Bora. No, this is to the hardest people group on the planet. If you've ever read the book of Jonah and then the rest of the prophets, you understand what did Jonah have to do? He had to go to a people that, first of all, were in the worst place ever, and he had to go to them and preach the word of God, and immediately they all repented from the king all the way down to the poorest. The entire city of Nineveh, 120,000 people, and as Jonah's pouting up on that hill, saying, why, God, haven't you destroyed them? God, in his loving kindness, is forgiving a people who don't deserve it. And yet those same people, the Israelites, are rejecting the word of God 
And God is reaching out to them that same love and that same grace and that same loving kindness. And yet they themselves are with their pride right there in the center of their forehead, rejecting the word of God. And Isaiah gets the privilege of ministering to them. Verse 6, I just want to read it one more time. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal. How is he carrying that live coal? That angel, that seraphim, carrying that live coal. That, that angel that had never sinned in his entire life. Didn't even know what sin was. As he's carrying that holy coal, what is he going to place it on? The lips of a man who has unclean lips. He's going to cleanse the lips of his prophet. He's going to prepare the way of his prophet Isaiah. And it says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. This is one of the most uh, beautiful verses in the entire Bible. Because there's two definitions of what it means to have sin. You see, there's two different words for sin in this one phrase. We have the word iniquity. And you'll see iniquity throughout the scriptures. And, and you may read it and just gloss over it without looking it up. Or maybe you've looked it up and forgotten like I do so many times. But literally, the word iniquity means to be bent. It's to understand that I am purposely deciding to sin. I am choosing to sin. I am purposely setting out to sin. I am committing iniquity. It is the sin of commission. But then there's also the other word that is used here. It's the word sin. And then, of course, many of you uh, know this term. It's an archery term. It means miss the mark. You are off uh, the mark. Even just by one degree, you have not hit the bullseye. And, and these are sins of omission. The, the sins that we don't necessarily set out to do, but we just do them. Maybe it's something that we forget to do, or maybe it's something that we have, you know, forgotten to do. It's those things that God still calls sin, but yet we, you know, don't always acknowledge that we do them. We say these things are like, um, you know, white lies. Or, you know, just an oops, or my bad. Or that person made me do it. These are the sins that we like to explain away. And Isaiah in his very being is being cleansed, not just from the sins of commission, but from the sins of omission as well. You see, God in his very being is holy. And he's calling Isaiah to also be holy. Then there's also 
this word here that is so amazing. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. This literally is the word kafar. And it comes from all the way back in the book of Genesis. There, there's something about the book of Genesis that lays the foundation for the rest of the Bible. And in the book of Genesis, there's also this word kafar. And it's in an unlikely place that we might not even think about. But in Genesis chapter 6, verse 14, the very first time that this word is used in the entire Bible, it says this. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. All the way back to the time of Noah. All the way back to Noah's ark. That Sunday school story that we can just gloss over so many times. That we can take for granted. And it says, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. That word cover literally means kafar. You see, for the ark... It was covered with pitch or tar, right? And what did that pitch do for the ark? Plugged all the leaks and it helped the ark float, right? If you've ever had a boat, you understand what that means to be, because you want to make sure that there's no holes. And yes, if it was just made out of wood, it would have floated for a certain amount of time, but then what would have happened? It would have sprung leaks. There would have been these little uh, holes within the ark itself. But the kafar, the pitch that covered, kafard the ark, kept it afloat. This same exact word is being used here as well. Except for we're not covered with pitch. We're not covered with tar. You know the answer. What are we covered with? The blood of Jesus Christ. What is it that makes us holy? Not something that I do. Not the good works that I have, which are by definition filthy rags. What is it that makes me holy? The blood of Jesus Christ. The covering that can only come from one who is holy. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 35 through 37, it says this, Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons, according to all that I've commanded you, seven days you will consecrate them, and you shall offer a bowl every day as a sin offering for atonement. You will cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it. You shall anoint it, kafar it, Cover it and sanctify it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it. And the altar shall be most holy. Again, the superlative form. Whatever touches the altar must be holy. The idea here, there must be a covering. And what is it? Blood. Even back in the Old Testament. The very first altar that was being built for the tabernacle itself must have been covered, not just the stones themselves, but the very covering of everything, the grill and the foundation. Everything must be covered in a blood. 
Do you see the illustration? Because we are covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. We are covered with the holiness of a righteous God. And if Jesus was just a man, it would mean nothing. It would just be another person that was crucified. But he, being Emmanuel, came to this earth, God with us, and died. So that we could have his righteousness. And as the lady sang, as we sang together, the beautiful exchange, the great exchange, my sin for his righteousness, his holiness, and his holiness for my sin. He who bore our sins on the cross. He knowing no sin whatsoever became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But there's also another amazing phrase. You see in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, it says this. And hopefully, as we end it here tonight, we have to remember what has just happened. The leper king has just died. The one who tried, and rightfully so, he was from the line of David. He deserved to be king. He had the heritage to be king, but yet at the same time, he wanted to be priest. He wanted, as he you know, took that censer to do an office that he himself was never meant to do, which was only for those descended from the line of Aaron through Levi. But in Zechariah chapter 6, it foretells this. Again, another prophet of God, one of the minor ones. It says, chapter, verse 12, Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, that same title, saying, Behold the man whose name is Branch, from his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and he shall sit and rule on his throne, the office of king. So he shall be a priest on his throne for the first time in all of eternity. The office of king and the office of priest joined together as one in perfect unity. And as it says, and the council of peace shall be between them both. For the first time, the office of king and the office of priest joined together in one, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would cover our sins with his blood. Could never have been done by any other man. And of course, if you've read the book of Hebrews, you understand that, yes, Jesus wasn't from the line of Aaron. He came from a greater line, the line of uh, Melchizedek. And of course, you can look that up for yourselves. Or you can just uh, listen to the sermon I did about a couple of months ago on a Sunday, which is entitled, Holy, Holy, Holy. It continues on, verse 8. And thank you for letting me uh, go a little bit of extra time just to uh, close out this section. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? 
and whom will go for us. And this is where we see the plurality of God. In his holiness, we see his unity. Uh, we see throughout the Old Testament, he is one. He will always be one. But yet at the same time, Elohim, the one who is plural, defined in his very title as God, says us. The unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit way back in the time of Isaiah, who's going to, by the way, predict in the very next chapter the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the one who is going to be born in a manger, Jesus Christ himself. He says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, then God said, let us Make in our image, make man in our image, according to our likeness. All these are plural pronouns. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over the cattle and all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The same us that is spoken at the time of creation. And again, if you read the book of Hebrews or the book of Romans, those great theological works written to different groups of people, Hebrews to the Israelites and Romans to the Gentiles, as you read this amazing phrase of how all the way back in creation itself, there was unity and triunity as well. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does a privilege of coming before the Holy One of the universe do to a person? And Isaiah, as he hears that cry, as he hears that invitation, whom shall I send? What does Isaiah do? And just like I did, and you know, those of you that were here, what does Isaiah do? He jumps up and says, here am I, send me. There's an exclamation point at the end of the verse. Is he saying, oh, send me, I'll go, whatever. No, with exuberance, with excitement, he says, here am I, send me, God. What is it like to come before a holy holy or righteous God. Not only does it begin with a meeting of the Holy One and recognizing His Lordship and His sovereignty, not only does it realize in my life, in my life, in my life, that I am a sinner and I must be cleansed. There is difference between His holiness and my sinfulness. And then understanding the fullness of his forgiveness, he takes away all my sin. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end just sitting on a pew or a chair or just coming to church on Sundays or Monday nights or Wednesday mornings or Wednesday nights or Fridays. It's understanding that God is sending us forth as he does with Isaiah. And the next 60 chapters are all about Isaiah being sent. It's all about Isaiah going forth. The understanding that we also get the privilege, as Jesus did, 
sending us forth as well. What do we call it? The great recommendation. The, 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 the great, you know, it's okay if you do or don't. No, it's the great commission, right? Go ye therefore into all the world, preaching the gospel. Preaching who Jesus Christ really is. But also the amazing thing is, and this is looking forward to the time in probably 10 years when we finally get there in the book of Revelation. Revelation in, you know, it's okay. I know most of you will be here. It's totally fine. If we're not raptured already, or if we're not already singing this song, which would be even more amazing. Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. The four living creatures, each having six wings. Where did you hear that? Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying the same exact phrase, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, and by the way, this is the Lamb, Jesus Christ himself, receiving the glory. The 24 elders fall down before him, who sits on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created and it is the invitation to join the everlasting song because guess who else will be in that crowd those of us that have accepted jesus christ as our lord and savior those of us that god has called to be holy 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 this time of refining here on this earth this time of sanctification here on this earth. But have you ever taken your eyes off the problems, off of that coal, and fixed your eyes on the prize? Where do we get to spend eternity at? In heaven forever and ever. And it is not some boring harp that you're going to be playing. It is the most exciting concert that you get to participate in. That we get to participate in. More glorious than any worship service here on the earth. And yes, thank God for our worship team. They practice so much. But we get to join the everlasting song. Joining with the throngs in heaven singing holy, 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 and every one of our voices will be absolutely perfect and in tune, and it'll be amazing. And every time you pray, every time you worship God, you get a glimpse into the very throne room of who God is. And so tonight, as we go forth, as we are sent, Take these passages to heart or read this chapter over and over. Let it sink 
into your very being every time we come into the presence of a holy and righteous God, we can come boldly, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because we are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ himself. We have been atoned for. And if you've never made that decision, if you never had that opportunity to accept Jesus Christ, I'll be right up here. Please come forward. Please come forward. Don't leave this room without understanding what it means to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because you will miss out on the greatest opportunity to understand that you also get to be in the very presence of a holy and righteous God. And so tonight, as we end, I pray, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for inviting us. And as we get a glimpse of your holiness tonight, help us to truly understand, maybe for the first time, what it means to have a relationship with the God of the universe who is holy, holy, holy. And yes, we must come with reverential fear. Yes, we must come understanding that you are perfect. You are holy and we are not. But yet at the same time, you invite us to come. Not because of what we have done, but because what you have done for us, sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, taking our sins, giving us your righteousness. And Lord, help us to be grateful. Help us to be thankful. Help us to understand that this is a privilege. That it isn't just something that we religiously do. It's not some tradition or, or, or a rut that we are in. Or something that I have to do. It is the understanding that we have the privilege to come before the Holy One of the entire universe, the holiest, holy, 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 and join with the everlasting song seeing worthy, worthy, worthy. You are the Lord God Almighty. And help us to praise you today. Help us to praise you tomorrow. Help us to praise you every single day and help us to grow more and more excited because every day is a closer day to you. We thank you, Lord, for being here. I thank you for these, my friends, my family. I ask you bless them immensely tonight. We love you with all you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming tonight. <laughs>